the end of the world. Children, welcome to The Earth Wants You. Here today with co-host Savitri D. I'm Reverend Billy from the Church of Stop Shopping. Our, our guest, very special activist from Brooklyn, New York, Imani Henry. And today, we just have a whirlwind of tragedies, glories. It's hard to even sort it out. It's just happening. It's, it's, we just have to be in it, do it, be with it, name it, and raise our fists in the air. Stefan Clark, shot in cold blood in his own backyard. Murdered, murdered. Washington, D.C., March for Our Lives, marching against, against those bullets, those triggers, those, those guns. The American government, violent everywhere. We have the soothing ritual music of Alice Coltrane. The call of a threatened life being. The red-faced spider monkey of Guyana. And now I'm going to turn it over to Savitri. Let's get started on... You just got back from Washington, D.C. Let's talk about it. That's right. On Saturday, I went down to Washington, D.C. with some members of the Stop Shopping Choir and uh, Gays Against Guns. They've been guests on our show before. Uh, we took a bus down, and there's nothing more fun than a busload of Gays Against Guns, let me tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, it wasn't all fun. Um, it's a serious issue, obviously. Uh, we were inspired by the kids. There were so many kids in D.C., just miles of teenagers um, singing, trying to chant, learning to chant, watching young people learn to chant is interesting. Uh, <laughs> and their parents standing by as if they were at a school dance watching them. A lot of suburban parents, um, a lot of white people, I got to say. Um, and Did you get the sense that they were, a lot of them were there in their first protest ever? Very much so. Even more even more than the Women's March, I felt that way. A lot of just very straight white people watching their children uh, becoming radicalized or at least politicized. Um, the speeches by the, the kids from Parkland were amazing. Um, we did a long action there uh, called the Human Beings, that's Gays Against Guns do, uh, where you dress in white and you sort of embody the, the spirit of a someone who's been killed by gun violence. I had a girl named Charlotte, who happens to be my own daughter's age, seven years old, from Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, it's a very powerful ritual. Uh, you're silent, you wear all white, you're veiled, you're carrying the picture. Maybe some of you have seen this ritual uh, at the Pride Parade or at various places around New York City. Um, and we have a clip of it right now, people responding to it. Megan Short, 1983 to 2016, murdered in Sinking Springs, Pennsylvania, along with her entire family. Her husband, Susan Hoke, 1975 to 2016. She was a resident of, resident of Jackson Township, Pennsylvania. She had obtained an order of protection before she was murdered Juan by her husband. Javez Martinez, 25, was remembered by his hotel colleagues as a kind and loving person. Martinez, whose city officials identified as Juan Chavez Martinez, was among the victims in the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting on June 12th. 
Daryl Roman Burt II, killed by gun June 12, 2016. Bailey Schweitzer. In high school, Bailey was a cheerleader and played volleyball. Mercedes Marisol Flores studied literature at Valencia College, had an interest in party planning, and was an avid music fan. Flores, 26, of Davenport, attended Pulse Nightclub with her friend Amanda Alvier on June 12th. Both were confirmed among those killed in the shootings at the popular club. And then uh, Killian Sunderman, our producer here, and I w wandered around and talked to some of the young people there. Um, we have a clip of that too. Hi, I'm Bridge Schwartz, and I came to this march because as a student, I want to have my voice out there against guns. I'm 14. And do you feel in school sometimes afraid? Are these things that you worry about in school every day? Yes, definitely. It could be me next. And after the shooting in Maryland, I live really close nearby, and it makes me feel really scared to be in school. I love seeing all these people care so passionately about this issue, and it makes me feel very hopeful to see that I'm not the only one who feels bad against guns. Teens need to speak up because they have a voice. My name is Anna Landry. I'm from New Jersey. I'm a student at Georgetown University here in D.C. I came out today because I think it's high time that our representatives listen to the majority of Americans who think that we need more restrictive gun laws and more common sense gun legislation that can protect our children and everyone who calls this country home. In high school, we had drills all the time about lockdowns and ways to hide and things to do if a shooter came into our school. And it's absolutely terrifying that our kids have to do this. And now with some people saying that the way to solve it is simply to be nicer to each other, to walk up to kids and say hi or smile more, is simply victim blaming and telling kids that it's their problem to solve, that they're not protected in their schools by adults who are, have a responsibility to keep our country, to keep our children safe. Uh, my name is Usley. I'm 21 years old. I'm here today because seeing those kids from Florida, everything they're saying, everything that they're asking for, such reasonable things. Mm -hmm. And I was in high school when Newtown happened, mm -hmm. and I thought then like some reasonable change would happen, and absolutely nothing happened. We finally were like, yeah, I can't, I can't live with this anymore. Hi, my name is Jackie. I'm 22 years old. Uh, I'm marching today because uh, since I've been in school. Um, there's always been some type of school shooting. When we were in fifth grade or sixth grade, uh, Virginia Tech occurred, and then Sandy Hook occurred, and even now, uh, Parkland occurred, and you still have minor shootings throughout the U.S. every single year. It always goes reported and always goes away within weeks, within months, where it just gets pushed by our current representatives, where they are saying their thoughts and prayers, and we're just tired of it. It's, an, it's time to actually act and actually do something more than just say, we're with you. I'm Amanda and I'm 18. I'm a senior in high school currently, and I do feel as though change needs to be made, and it does start with us. Like, in order to get to my school, you gotta go through a metal detector, so that's really the safest we can feel, I guess. So the, t the young people at the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. on Saturday. Just sounds like common sense to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, plain speech, these right? These 14-year-olds just exactly um, saying the responsible things, saying the, th the, the, the kinds of things that break through all the obfuscations, all the policy wonky stuff, all the, all the corruption in, in politics. And you, you just feel these these 
innocent souls just saying, well, this is wrong. Well, it's, it's also... We shouldn't n- be shooting No each one other. gets to be innocent now. But, you know, I did also speak to some young people who talked about... Um, I talked to an, a young African-American woman, and she was just... She felt a lot of confusion because she felt like, well, you know, black kids have been getting shot for a long time, and we haven't had marches for them like at, at this level. So she was feeling confused. She's, she was trying to figure out how to to want to do both, you know, how to not feel um, let uh-huh. down by it. Um, and it was great, though, because she and her friends were talking really openly and easily about it, and she was with some of her white friends. So I feel like also some of the tensions that exist in it and the, and the problematic aspects of it, um, especially now, you know, it's important that we respond really strongly to Stefan Clark's death because for that very reason, right? We can't just like let it slide by. So Wednesday night, Columbus Circle people, uh, Stefan Clark, we gather there to demand justice and to stop the killing. Black Lives Matter. The, the Stefan Clark murder, um, just, uh, you just think of Sean Bell, you think of Amad- Amadou Diallo, and then you, and, you, and you go back in time. Uh, Amadou Diallo was 41 bullets. 20 years ago. Sean Bell was 50 bullets, and now Stefan, uh, 20 bullets. I mean, the, 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 the fusillade of bullets that comes down on an unarmed person, uh, uh, in the case of uh, Amadou and Stefan, uh, these, are, these are, were people who were uh, probably reaching for some kind of ID to offer to the cops. In, in one case, it was an iPhone. In the other case, it was a wallet trying to make sense of why they were being surrounded by aggression, by, you know, white people with guns. Uh, and, and after 20 years, there's apparently no change in the protocol whatever. No change. If you, if you can bear to look at that viral video of Stefan's murder, it's identical to Amadou Diallo's murder. It's just identical. People surrounding uh, a lone figure in the dark, uh, shouting at the person, all of them shouting at once. Then finally somebody says, gun, 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 and and then they start shooting. And uh, they, in 20 years, have not changed, have not changed that basic approach. They must be teaching it in the academies the same way. Ah. I think it's time Let's go to the news from the natural world. (laughs) What's going on around the world, amen. Good morning, welcome to news from the natural world. Human activities are causing an alarming decline in biodiversity that is endangering food security, clean water, energy supplies, economies, and livelihoods for billions of people worldwide. Yep, we knew that. Cardiology researchers in Michigan recently linked extreme day-to-day changes in temperatures to a significant increase in heart attacks, a finding that raises the disturbing possibility of yet another harmful effect of our warming planet on human health. A new hybrid solar cell works in rainy weather by generating electricity from the movement of raindrops sliding on its surface. Conflicts and climate disasters, particularly drought, drove the number of people facing crisis levels of hunger up by about 15% last year, and the situation is getting worse. Last year, 124 million people in 51 countries faced crisis levels of hunger. 124 million people. 
From Montana to California, wildfires in 2017 shattered record after record, costing the Forest Service an unprecedented $2 billion. The blazes ravaged rural landscapes and business centers and claimed dozens of lives. This season's bone-dry winter conditions in the southern Rockies could set the stage for another taxing fire season in the west. Over the next two decades, as many as 11 states are predicted to see the average annual area burned increase by 500%. That would mean a small fire, say 100 acres, becomes on average a 600-acre fire. By 2039, researchers estimate there will be 50 fewer days of snowpack in much of the West and a 4-degree Fahrenheit increase in average temperature. Both trends will create longer fire seasons. <sighs> the enormous dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico will take decades to recover, even if the flow of farming chemicals that is causing the damage is completely halted. Intensive agriculture near the Mississippi has led to fertilizers leaching into the river and the Gulf of Mexico via soils and waterways. This has resulted in a huge oxygen-deprived dead zone in the Gulf that is now at its largest ever, covering an area greater than the state of New Jersey. A new study has found that even if runoff of nitrogen, a fertilizer chemical, was fully stemmed, the Gulf would take 30 years to recover. Worldwide, at least 500 sites experiencing hypoxia, oxygen deprivation, up from just 50 in 1950. And the true number may be higher. We are killing those oceans, my friends, killing them. Oh. Acre mm. by acre. Ten Greenpeace activists have boarded a rig that was due to sail to the Arctic to drill prospects on behalf of oil firm Statoil. They're up there now. Good luck to you, friends. Be safe. Researchers found black adults were more likely than their white counterparts to be exposed to air pollutants including pollen and the invisible particles of materials found in construction sites. They were also more likely than white adults to breathe a sooty black material produced by coal-powered plants, diesel engines, and other sources. Additional analyses showed that exposure to the particles but not to sooty black material was associated with risk factors for developing heart problems. Okay, so we know about this problem, and we've got to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> environmental justice bring it the researchers said that findings suggest breathing these fine particles contributed in part to the increased risk for heart attack stroke and other causes of death seen over an eight year period among African Americans taking part in the study this is like the, long, the biggest study of African Americans and um, heart disease strokes and heart attacks and pollutants and it is decisive decisive evidence a decade ago, Starbucks promised it would make 100% of its cups reusable or recyclable by 2015, but today most of its paper cups are still going to landfills. A second goal, to serve 25% of its drinks in reusable containers by 2015, was quietly lowered to 5% in 2011. Only 1.4% of Starbucks drinks are served in reusable containers now. Starbucks uses 2 billion straws each year. 2 billion plastic straws by Starbucks. Starbucks uses around 6 billion cups annually. They open a new cafe in China every 15 hours. Friends don't bring friends to Starbucks. Starbucks That's says still true. that, quote, the planet is our most important business partner. <laughs> well, uh-huh. They bought that business partner out, <laughs> sold him down the river. 800 million people need to travel and queue for at least 30 minutes to access safe drinking water. Bird populations are collapsing in rural France at a catastrophic rate, according to two studies published on Tuesday. 
Various species, including the Eurasian skylark and the common whitethroat, have seen their numbers decline. And the number of partridges has slumped by 80%. The decline has been marked since 2008-2009, a period that corresponds exactly with scrapping of European regulation that obliged farmers to leave at least 10% of their land fallow each year. Did you hear that? Deregulation of fallow lands. That means more pesticide on more lands, direct correlation with the catastrophic decline in songbirds in France. More than 143 million people will be displaced, forced to move within their countries to escape climate-related issues by 2050. 143 million people displaced by 2050 by climate-related issues. Uh, this was a study, actually, of worldwide gentrification that uh, led me to this number. Um, there are currently 7.6 billion people on Earth. The UN projects that the planet's population will increase by 1 billion within the next 15 years. By 2100, over 11 billion people could be inhabiting the planet. And where are we going to live? The vast dump of plastic waste swirling in the Pacific Ocean is now bigger than France. Germany and Spain combined, far larger than previously feared, and is growing rapidly even exponentially. Global plastics production hit 322 million tons in 2015. That's production, people. That doesn't account for all the plastic we already made before 2015. Eight million tons of plastics enter the oceans every year, much of which has accumulated in five giant garbage patches around the planet. <sighs> and in our last bit of natural news, it is my birthday, Savitri D's birthday. Savitri D. Happy birthday to me. Thank you for listening. That's news from the natural world. It's all bad today. I apologize for not finding good news, but you know what? <laughs> These are hard days. It's about. It's not a. It's not a happy time. But I just want to take. We can think of something p positive, can't we? We can, and I want. I want to just your birthday. I want to. Well, no, I want to <laughs> think about Stefan Clark um, without talking about him. I just want to think about him. I want to think about that young man and the life he had and the life he doesn't get to have and his family. And let's listen to Alice Coltrane. In his honor, Stephon Clark.
the great Alice Coltrane. Amen. Uh, we know gentrification is an issue, not just in New York City, but all over the country and indeed all over the world. Uh, if you go to the West Coast, you can see people living in tent cities under bridges. If you go to Europe, you see people gathered on the edges of cities. Uh, gentrification is a, is a growing issue. Uh, it's only going to get harder and worse. And we are really happy today to have Imani Henry, who is leading the charge against gentrification in Brooklyn, the, the founder of Equality for Flatbush. And uh, th the work they did at Equality for Flatbush sort of inspired the work of the Brooklyn Anti-Gentrification Network, which is a, a, a larger body. Um, Imani Henry uh, describes the intersectional set of crises confronting the working class black and brown residents of Flatbush, Crown Heights, and really all of Brooklyn. And, and I, I think we could safely say m many other places as well. Uh, ban fights to stop rampant corporate gentrification that is causing displacement. It is that basic. And Imani Henry, thank you so much for coming down hey. today. Thank you for Welcome. having me. Uh, we always start by asking uh, w if you could just spend a minute talking about your favorite place on earth, whatever that might be, wherever that might be. Havana, Cuba. All right, Havana, Cuba. Can you, can you describe why you like it so much? I, I love Cuba because it's a place where people have you know, access to free health care, where people have access to free education, where there aren't Stefan Clarks, where they, you know, can evacuate communities, you know, when there is a hurricane or a storm, that the people come first versus profits. So for me, it's always remembering mm -hmm. Cuba. Havana, Lulia. Yeah, I, I wonder what... If you could just talk briefly about um, what happened in Sacramento to Stefan Clark. Um, I know you've been working against police brutality really for decades now, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about that to us. Well, I think the, the main thing, as you already announced, is for people to come to Columbus um, Circle on Wednesday uh, at 7 o'clock. It's People's Power Assembly, a group that I'm also a part of, uh, shut it down. New York, which is the that hosts People's Mondays, which is the longest running Black Lives Matter activity um, in uh, New York City, and other groups are, you know, mobilizing. I think it's important that New York shows, you know, its solidarity with the folks that are, you know, blocking bridges and mm -hmm. fighting in Sacramento. That's right. And we've always done that. You know, the chant is, you know, what it, whether it's Ferguson or Charlotte, we got your back. And mm -hmm. I think it's important that people mobilize. And of course. You know, just in general, you know, the right here in New York, we're fighting to get Devontae Presley, who was shot three times by, you know, the 67 precinct, you know, out of jail. There's the we we just commemorated the fifth anniversary of Kamani Gray, also East Flatbush, mm -hmm. who was shot, um, you know, face down by again the 67 precinct. Um, and again, we have Hoops for Justice is coming up in August, which commemorates both Kamani Gray and Chantel Davis, who also was killed in East Flatbush. And we can, the names go on. There are multiple, <sighs> Constance Malcolm is in a, her own struggle around um, Ramali Graham right now. Mm -hmm. and so yes, this is, this is a time, and you know, that a lot of shootings happen in our communities, starting in the spring and in the summer. It's like, one of, you know, across the country. Um, and 
you know, this is the time for people to get back in the streets. I mean, if we want and we're inspired by the parkland, you know, young people, like this is the time for people to mobilize mm -hmm. around police violence among, you know, and to make sure that we are talking about black and brown lives and the constant police uh, harassment and violence that goes on in our neighborhoods every single day. I'm wondering what uh, the, the white suburban population that, that was in D.C., I wonder how they, um, how they register r racially what the, the threat of violence by guns. I don't, think, they do guns, regist I don't um, think they I don't know that they, I don't think they really register it. I don't think they do. Well, what, what I do think is happening, regardless, is that there is, there is a, you know, a, a conversation. I, you know, this generation of young people, you know, from the stage, there mm -hmm. was a lot of black youth that spoke. Yes. There are definitely young delegations from all over the country, particularly, and as similar to the Me Too movement that was created by a black woman, you know, the Chicago youth in particular have been, and all over the country, black youth have been talking about gun violence yes. for decades. And I think that there is, a, again, everything gets, you know, every generation becomes more political mm -hmm. than the last. And so that there is a clearer understanding of young people, that young people are talking about that Parkline, for instance, I believe the statistic is that they're at least 30% black mm -hmm. and how the news media didn't interview young, you know, That's black right. youth. It's not perceived as, as being 30% black. Right. And, and, I, and I, think that, I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, we can always do better. So the, the point of the matter, <laughs> the, the, really, the point of the matter is if people you know, feel a sense of injustice about how white supremacy and racism happens, not only in the media, but what is you know, deemed, you know, that one group of young people are demonized because they take the streets or block a bridge, and another group of, of, of young people are deemed as, as sheroes and heroes because mm -hmm. they're speaking up, mm -hmm. that we then, as the, we as the the more radical forces, we as the folks of, that have political consciences, then we come out mm -hmm. and we show the solidarity. Right. We show the way to do it. And I think young people across the country in general are, have a clearer understanding this is a time that we not, must act because you know, they are murdering you know, young people left and right. I'm, I'm looking for, uh, uh, that's I guess a kind of intersectionality, uh, the uh, violence of of American foreign policy, or the, I should say the, the foreign policy of the United States, which is racist, um, always, always involving small countries of non-Caucasian population, going back to Vietnam. And, and the, uh, something about the way that, that we label and categorize in capitalism and in the news, the way capitalism organizes information, somehow the, the shooting of large numbers of, of, of people uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq is completely separate in people's mind from East Flatbush, from Parkland, from, you know what I mean? From yes. Ferguson. And, and yet when I, when I, when I was in the uh, uh, Ferguson jail uh, with the, I went down there and got arrested on Moral Monday, you know, with all the ministers, and rabbis, uh, imams, native shaman people. There was just lots of spiritual workers there, and we all got arrested together, 50 of us. And we watched and observed together and then talked about in jail how the, the 
Iraq vets were, st- were striding around the station house and the jail like John Wayne. They were the people that everybody else looked to. Their violence coming from being f- in a frustrated war in the Mideast, their violence was going directly into the neighborhoods of Ferguson. We watched that happen. And so we can't, you know, someday let's have a, uh, an ability to, you know, follow the money, follow the bullets, see the whole picture. And can I just add that it's so interesting because Iraq veterans against the war, I think it's about faces now, what they call, I, I'm just going to shout them out and said, did security, I'm wearing a do, it, do mm-hmm. it like Durham hat, that they came down and did security to support the folks that, you know, it's done now, what we were saying allegedly, um, top of the statue, <laughs> that it's interesting, that, and it's just so important that the, there's this radicalism of, of, of um, service personnel mm-hmm. around, yeah. you know, calling, you know, Kopagnik, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's, it's an amazing piece of like, yes, when, the, when soldiers are, you know, like, you know, ramped up in the service of the U.S., you know, of the U.S. government, it, they act in one way. Mm-hmm. When folks are conscious and political, they turn the tide in yes. ways. I, I just want to say, because the left is full of like former U.S., yes. you know, military, and they're angry. They're mm-hmm. angry as hell. And they're like on the side of justice. And when they're on the side of justice, standing rocking, they are amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. amazing. And they go, you know, beyond, the, you know, the call of duty. They're like, they're ready to say mm-hmm. like, look what you've done to us. So it is very true. Like it is like I, the, I was in Ferguson as well. It was it was it was a militarized mm-hmm. zone. It, yeah. The tanks they commandeered a whole supermarket parking lot to like have all their tanks and all their weaponry mm-hmm. there. And at the same time, you know, again thinking about like a lot of the folks that were like with the side of the people of Ferguson were probably ex-military. The, yeah, Be- and you're right. It was true in Standing Rock as well. Exactly. Very same similar dynamic. Let's talk about Brooklyn a little bit. You know, I mean, what's happening in Brooklyn? You know, we've done a lot of work against big rezones in the past, and I know the city's learned a little bit of a lesson about how to like, about how to like make the rezone a little bit smaller so people don't notice. Can you talk a little bit about what's going up by, on by, up by the Brooklyn Botanical Garden? Why don't you? So the the and I and you know I I want to be you know very very clear that the the beauty of ban uh, Brooklyn Anti Gentrification Network we we initiated Quality Flatbush initiated this sort of call to action of all the different groups that are uh, working in their neighborhoods so Sunset Park or um, you know Crown Heights or Bushwick or where what have you and and ask for folks to like can we all try to work together of course. Um, in a way to like be you know a fist mm-hmm. against the uh, the you know this plague of, of rezonings and and um, that are going on you know in Brooklyn and in general. So you know Alicia Boyd, who is the leader of Movement to Protect the People, is spearheading you know uh, the, the this uh, struggle against rezoning. She actually has become you know, a figure in the in, in New York as leading one of the most successful anti-rezoning mm-hmm. struggles, um, particularly the, the rezoning, you know, the attempt to rezone Empire Boulevard, which is on the border of Flatbush and Crown Heights. And so now she she's helped to organize <laughs> a group called Flower Lovers Against um, <laughs> Corruption, right. FLAC. 
And, <laughs> and they, um, you know, again, Crown Heights residents, and I want to say largely black women, um, you know, and, and white women, uh, you know, this is, they're a woman-led movement. And, and particularly, you know, they have talked about what is common sense to all of us, the fact that if you want to build huge um, storied high-rises around the botanical garden and sort of use this as like, wow, you're going to have this view of the botanical gardens. The, the understanding is that you're going to like devastate and destroy because you're gonna block out all the sunlight. It's such a yeah, common so sense obvious. thing. <laughs> so obvious. And I forget, I please don't quote me, I forget like, and I think with in like four or five days, they accumulated thousands of signatures yeah. of people just saying like, of course, this is a ridiculous thing. And they were able to beat back that initial um, plan of the developer. But still on Franklin Avenue, there is like a rezoning that's happening to then bring in to, you know, to again, around the botanical gardens to bring in this particular, this um, possible, um, you know, building of a yet another high rise. It's about six or seven stories, but still, like it is still the understanding that it'd be surrounding. Yeah, and it opens general. up the door, right? Exactly. For all those other things that happen, right? Exactly. So that the, they, again, you know, Community Board 9, and again, Alicia Boyd is, you know, the, the person, one of the people that is in leadership of this, has done a lot of work to expose Community Board 9. When we, you know, first started, like back in 2014, you know, it was just about like, you know, there were, um, you know, there were various folks that were problematic, that they were in the in league with the real estate, you know, industry, like maybe they work for a developer. Now, at this point, the actual chair of Community Board 9 is a lobbyist of, you know, it is, <laughs> it is, and, and we, you know, like. They don't have to hide it anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and and she's been, she is, she is sued you know, the borough president, she's sued ver various forces, she's pushed and gotten many people off of the community board, but that's the, I mean, that, that we even as, as community members, that she even has to spend all of this time to state the obvious, these folks are not in the best interest of our community. Right, so community board members are appointed, not elected exactly. in New York, which is a real problem, right? If exactly. They don't actually speak for the community, they are not serving a constituency, right? No, they, and even more so, they don't have, so I wanna be clear, the community, the, the understanding of a community board, the, its origins did come from a more um, progressive place of where wanting to have community, you know, these are community residents, you know, the understanding that they would, um, you know, have the best interests of the community at heart. Definitely there are community boards that still have that as a mm -hmm. function. That's, I wanna make that very clear. At the same time, yes, they're appointed by the borough president. Our borough president happens to be pro-gentrification, along with a lot of the elected officials. Mm -hmm. There is a percentage of the community board that's recommended from your, um, you know, from your uh, a city council person. So that's part of the piece of it. They have no veto power, and that's really what the major right. problem is. When the mayor's plan came down, what is this, uh, 2016? When the the housing plan came down. All the community boards had said no. They, they, and and the mayor, you know, De Blasio made it very clear. Well, you have no veto power. Right. So when all the community boards said no, we don't want to make housing. No, we don't want this plan that just opens up all these rezonings. This they did. They did right by the community. They did the right thing. Right. And the mayor said, well, you don't have any veto power. So so what? So, so they only can recommend things to the mayor and the city council. Mm -hmm. They can only say we think it would be better if we did this for our community, right? But they don't actually have any power. And that's why ban actually that was one of our our our, our you know whose community um, 
you know, campaign specifically was about, you know, I don't want to pretend that we have like all the answers, but we said, one, the appointed situation is not working for us. And that's why we're in this problem in the first place. And two, that they have no veto power. Mm -hmm. So what's the point of Mm -hmm. a community board that can't stop You know, what is like this devastating thing that that we're we're now up to 88,000 people in the shelter system. And part of that is about the fact that they are like completely displacing people from our communities in the in the in the pursuit of luxury high rise development that doesn't that's 80 percent, you know, you know, and again, even the 20 percent affordable you know, they, I, I always like to Whatever. quote this, 25% of the families in New York City make under $25,000 a year. They're not in the mayor's plan. No. God, They're not no. even in the no. They're just forgotten. They're. Exactly. Let me ask you what, what relationship there might be between uh, gentrification and uh, police brutality. We, we make a really clear di- uh, direct link. And that ban also, um, at our very beginning, had groups, you know, for instance, Quality for Flatbush, we, we've always made that link. That's part of our work. We're the police accountability group for Flatbush East Flatbush. But also that there were police accountability groups, El Grito, um, Cop Watch teams also were part of the initial formation mm-hmm. of ban for that reason. Mm-hmm. And, and still to this day, that has been like, that is sort of a deciding factor for us. We, you know, our marches are, you know, we did a, last year a Brooklyn wide march against gentrification, racism, and police violence. Like, we make those distinctions every day Mm -hmm. because, exactly, one, in 2012, there were lots of statistical data that first came out about linking gentrifying gentrifying neighborhoods and, um, at that point, step and frisk. Yeah. And really looking at the the, the hotbeds of, like, Crown Heights or Bed-Stuy, Flatbush, You know, the, the at this point in time, there is a clear understanding about, you know, we don't even use the word over-policing. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the occupation, the, 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 the increased occupation of our communities and gentrifying um, places that are gentrified, or even the fact that in neighborhoods like Park Slope that have been gentrified, you find less no police. cops. Exactly. And that it's almost like a, there's almost a free-for-all. If you are around in a neighborhood, um, you know, like Park Slope, even some sections of Bed-Stuy, on the weekend, you kind of see that there is sort of like open containers yeah. and, you know, Clocking. Pe- yeah, people sure. can drink on this, you know, people drink on, we, we, there's a whole like sort of meme or something about white people drinking on the subway or, <laughs> or smoking on subway platforms because again, things, and, and again, they're, they're sending helico- helicopters in the sky for a young person, black young person, 16 years old that, you know, does, you know, you know, doesn't pay their fare um, on the subway. And we talk about this. This is why Swipe It Forward is such a big campaign. It is our neighborhoods that are under siege, that there is an understanding that undocumented people are being particularly targeted Mm. by the police around fare evasion, around, Mm. you know, like uh, driving violations. All of these things are happening in our neighborhoodds. And again, we're in our, our neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that are rapidly gentrifying. You know, it's, it's such a, it's such an important sort of piece to really talk about all these connections because something like not paying your fare if you're undocumented is something that's deportable. Yep. That's theft of service. Parking tickets. Parking I mean, tickets. Nothing's minor enough to get ice all over the all over you. You know, you, you they'll knock on your door and take your father away if he uh, didn't pay his parking tickets seven or eight years ago. Absolutely. We have a member of our choir who whose neighbor in Jersey City had that happen to him. Absolutely. He couldn't remember the parking tickets. It didn't matter what he could remember. The, the computer, right or wrong, you know, the computer might have been wrong. But, he, you know, he's going to get flown back to Columbia 
because the com computer remembered his history in a particular way. Right. There's no cross-examination. There's no, you know, we'll have an independent investigation of that computer's memory. So it's clear that uh, segregation is the, is the key to this kind of control, right? Like if they keep the neighborhoods and the community segregated, they can do this, right? They can keep doing this. Is desegregation possible? Like, how can we do it? How can we do it? How can we unfold that so that we're living amongst, so that you can't have like a park slope where there's no cops and people do whatever they want, and and you can't have you know state-sanctioned violence every minute of every day in East New York. How do we undo that? So I'm, I, I, I'm originally from Boston, so I want to be careful about the word segregation. Right. Um, because I, I did grow up in a segregated right. city. I, I wouldn't call New York, and because I, I, I also want to be really clear, Park Slope, which is a, a place that I love, and I kind of, it was a place I worked and loved. I just, the, yesterday was the 25th anniversary of Brooklyn, um, Brooklyn um, oh, Arts Exchange. Oh, Arts yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm a former, you know, artist and resident. I mean, I want to be very clear, Park Slope has, you know, historically been a Latinx yes. and black. I mean, our project, before it's gone, take it back, we were documenting black churches that in Park Slope. Yep. So I want to be really clear, like, Park Slope that I remember from 1990s mm. was a vibrantly diverse, yeah. particularly Latinx, black, Jewish, Irish, mm -hmm. you know, community. And I think gentrification is what's segregating New York City yes. because it is pushing what I mean we talk about it being white supremacy we talk about the gentrification is like you know ethnic cleansing because the truth of the matter is they're making more white more affluent cities that that uh, that we can talk about the Latinx population of both Bushwick and Williamsburg has decreased. That but for Stuyvesant and Harlem's the black population has decreased, and that's what they're. And again, what is being replaced is more wealthier people. I want to even be clear about Williamsburg because again, it's it's a cautionary tale. They have had four, maybe five rezonings. Yes, you know, in in Williamsburg, which went from like the place that like you know sort of white young hipstery movement kind of could live there to like luxury high rises right. where no one in 10 years yeah right mm -hmm. can afford to live there Williamsburg I mean all that that was fun and cute for people to sort of say like Williamsburg is it it's besides the club <laughs> scene people can't live in Williamsburg Not at all. anymore it has now become like where Wall Street lives mm -hmm. I remember in Dumbo there was this one real estate guy who approached kind of our our group of people, our crowd. And he was putting artists into his, you know, converted six-story loft thing. And he was putting us in there with two-year leases, right? You remember this? Melentis, and the yeah, he still does it all the time, yeah. Oh, he's still doing it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's his name? It's Valentus, I think. It's it's two trees, or the, yeah, the, you know. He knew, he he knew, and he could actually schedule with the with with the way that he rented out his 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 properties. He knew well, the artist will be here for mm -hmm. two years, and then, you know, the twenty eight year old millionaires from Ohio, those kids that come from somewhere. They're, we'll be ready for them. They'll be ready to. We well, can I remember the, the, the Williamsburg put the rezone in there first in yeah. 2004. You know, and, and there was a 
the fight against that was really strong, right? right? But it was also instantly racialized, which I thought was like strategic, obviously, on the part of the city and the part of the of real estate. And that's what they do. They figure out a way. It was the same at Coney Island when we worked against that rezone. You know, it, they have really good racializing skills. You know, they 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 pit communities against each other. Um, they they. They confuse, and it happened here in, in downtown Brooklyn as well. We know that this is a tool of gentrification, right? And I want to know, like, from you, because I feel like you you are really a leader in this more than anyone I can think of right now in New York. Like, how do we undo that? How do we talk uh, uh, above that, around that? How do we get through that racializing so that we can work together? Well, I think that's the whole piece of it. We, I mean, our, our this is, I, you know, I want to be really clear. Like, we don't negotiate with the city. The the way that we've been successful is that we drive them out. Right. And so the last rezoning struggle with Williamsburg, we we publicized the fact that the elected, I forget, I'm so sorry I don't remember the elected's name, was on a bullhorn <laughs> telling the developers get out. Mm-hmm. And that's how we were able to not have Empire Boulevard. We shut down yep. those meetings. When you engage and mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. is starting to talk Direct about Direct action. Right. Every time they, they want to do the city, the, the city wants to have a plan, we say, no. You, if they have the meeting, that's what the problem is. We never ask for our neighborhoods to be rezoned. Right. We don't want the rezoning. That's right. If we say it from the very beginning, no, mm-hmm. get out. Mm-hmm. We're not going to see this happen in our neighborhood. That's how we've been successful. Mm-hmm. And now, that, because people think that they can engage, and it was so good, the Bushwick rezoning, we also have our families out there fighting that, that the, you know, the head of you know, a DCP was like, you know, we're not really interested. We don't really care if you all are displaced. Now, what does DCP the stand Department for? Department of City Planning, uh-huh, which right. is really like, again, this is uh, people think that this is some that their goal was to quote unquote sort of do these studies to, you know, help neighborhoods. We're clear that they're the ones that have a very racist understanding. Our signs say, ban signs say, stop your racist planning. Yes. Rezonings are only happening in neighborhoods. And this is, I think this is the piece of it. Bensonhurst is one of the last neighborhoods to go through a downzoning, which means like, you know, the, the keeping the neighborhood at mm-hmm. its like quaintest, most like yeah. um, two, three stories. Exactly. Like Bay Ridge. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst, Park Slope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of the neighborhoods of color. I mean, I, I hear Tom and Gotti, who's like, you know, one of the progressive yeah, city planners mm-hmm. talking about it's only happening in neighborhoods of color. So again, like, I think it's very important, the racialization, it's racism. Let's yep. just call it yes. what it is. It's racism. It's happening and targeting communities of color, well, low inc- low to middle income, because again, it affects homeowners, and they do the divide and conquer based on class, based on race, that you're a homeowner versus someone that lives in, like, mm-hmm. affordable housing, mm-hmm. in, a, in its rent-stabilized housing, and, and, and doing these divided conquer and it's so beautiful like m top particularly our homeowners that are saying get out just go because again all of our property taxes we were going doing ban is doing a whole thing about everybody's property taxes have gone up way up everybody's now to m top again a movement to protect the people mm. there you go yes talking to our people movement out there in ohio the and arizona and new mexico that might not know our lingo here movement mm-hmm. to protect the people well i want to put in a final when you look out at, at this violence it's coming in from so many directions is there a kind of meta politics that we ha- have yet to discover? Is there a, a peace movement that that we have to get to that we haven't quite stepped into yet? Have response to that well, question? I I I tend to be um, you know so my politics um, tend to be 
based and a, a, an understanding of love for community and for people. I am, you know, it's an interesting piece. Like I want to always go with the understanding that we have been in a long struggle of organizing um, and we do need to take it to the next level. I don't know if we're in a place of ready for peace as yet, because I think there's so much anger and rage that we have not tapped into. Mm -hmm. We've been told to suppress our rage. I, I think mm. about even in the anti-gentrification movement that the places that are most successful right now beating back gentrification are the folks that have said from the very beginning, don't come here. Right. And that's out in L.A., Boyle Heights, defend Boyle Heights. We love them. We have, um, sh you know, Chicago resists. Mm -hmm. I think we need to, we say we need to build a, a Brooklyn, you know, anti-gentrification resistance movement. Yes. And I also feel like that's the piece of it. Like the Black Lives Matter movement you know, you know, again, it's like, I mean, it's been a fierce and amazing. And I talk about this all the time. Like, we need to start thinking about occupying our homes. Yes. We need to start thinking occupying about... Occupying our homes. Occupying our homes. You know, uh, that, that we need to, like, wow. the, occupying that you, you want to build in this neighborhood? Okay, well, this is the bodies of people yes. that, that are not going to allow you. These bulldozers will not come. Mm. We need to think about Standing Rock, yes. where people put their bodies on the line yes. and said no. Yes. There's a pipeline project, could you just mention Coney Island, that's coming right to, to New York. Yep. Coming to New York, New Jersey. And we need to really think about, like, are we ready by any means necessary yes. to stop the destruction of New York City? Amen. So that's, 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 and I think that's And a that, is that, that is peace. That is loving. Peace. Yes. That, that is peace. That is love. Thank you. Imani Henry. Thank you, Imani. Leading the way. Thank you so much for your work. You're preaching there. <laughs> Honored to have you with us today. Honored to have you with us today. And don't forget, Wednesday night, Columbus Circle, Stefan Clark, 7 p.m. Come out, sh bring your body, bring your whole body, bring a friend, bring three friends. And if you can't come, send five in your place. We've got to fill up those streets. It is time, and it has been time for so long. I'd like to um, turn now to the red-faced spider monkey. Amen. It's going to call out to us. It's found in eastern South America and areas north of the Amazon River. They're 16 to 24 inches long and weigh between 15 and 20 pounds. Um, the red-faced spider monkey is an essential part of the tropical rainforest ecosystem. And they so play that's northern Brazil and Venezuela. Yeah, that's right. Um, the destruction of tropical rainforests and threats from hunting pose the greatest challenge to the monkey's survival because they prefer mature tropical forests and seldom venture into disturbed habitats. These monkeys are especially vulnerable to the effects of forest fragmentation. I want to tell you, these little monkeys are, um, they are about the size of a newborn baby, human baby, but they weigh twice as much. So you can imagine how strong their little bodies are. <laughs> and hear the sounds.
Oh, that was the sound of the sound of life. We feel when we hear a, a threatened, a going extinct species that that ecosystem that it's a part of is calling out to us. The the community of that life that that life is is in that life. The the communities that we feel are endangered in our cities and towns by out-of-control police, by out-of-control real estate agents and corrupted pol politicians. The, uh, the anger that we, we shout back and say no that is our entire community rising up into us. That is the families, the survivors of violence, the people, the people working to, to find a way to survive, to find a way to, to continue to, to live and flourish. We call out today against gun violence, against real estate violence, against fossil fuel violence. And the call that we make is the sound of life, the melody and the beat of love. Today's Earth Wants You is just at the front lines talking to activists who might be engaging with us on the live stream, listening to us on audio. Let's communicate with each other. Let's call out to each other. Let's get to work. Earthalooya. Wants You is a project of the Church of Stop Shopping, a radical performance community based in New York City. We rely on you. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. If you want to support our work, and what is our work? We resist consumerism. We resist the military. We resist the commodification of the earth and her resources. Earthalooya people, join us. RevBilly.com. <laughs>